Every week, the New York Times publishes one or two pages of information that it knows to be untrue. No, I'm not talking about the made-up claims of the fake news crowd. I'm talking about the New York Times bestseller list. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about why the list matters and why it's wrong. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hey, it's Seth. We need your help. Our culture needs your help. Marketing. Marketing is the act of making things better by making better things. Marketing is what we call it when you bring your work to the world in a way the world can engage with it. And the marketing seminar is back. It's back for another session with more than 10,000 alumni so far. It is the most successful, most effective workshop of its kind. Check out themarketingseminar.com for more details. We would love to have you join us. I'm an author, so I understandably care a little bit about the New York Times bestseller list. But why does it even matter? Well, we'll begin with this. For 500 years, books have mattered. Books have never reached the preponderance of people because there are just so many different titles. It's possible for a movie to be seen by 20 or 30 million people. It's likely that a national TV show could be seen by almost as many on a regular basis. But a book? If a book sells 2 million copies, it's a gasp-inducing home run. 5 million is virtually unheard of these days. So books, books don't have mass appeal per title. But who reads books? Who buys books? Who talks about books? Well, the answer to that question is largely people who influence the culture, people who start and maintain conversations. You might not have read The Atkins Diet, but if you've ever touched anything that's labeled keto, it's because someone wrote a book. Books can influence which movies get made, which TV shows get made, but mostly what they're able to do, particularly nonfiction books, is change the conversation. But books have a torturous route from the author to you. And one of the stops on that route for a long time was Barnes & Noble, the big box bookstores before Amazon. Where are you in Barnes & Noble? Because if you're near the cash register, if you're in a big stack near the door, then someone is going to find your book. It's a little bit like SEO, search engine optimization, except for books. But how do you end up in a big pile near the door? Well, there are a couple ways that that happened. One way was that your publisher would flat out pay the bookstores to be in the front of the store, but publishers aren't very good at that. Another way is that the sales force for the publisher would agitate and push because this is going to be a big book. Now, the thing about book sales is they are guaranteed, meaning that if the bookstore doesn't sell it, they can ship it back for a full credit. They're not taking any risk at all. So they're saying to Random House and the other publishers, well, you're taking all the risk. Which one do you think is big? And how does a publisher decide what's big? Well, ironically, they often decide based on how big an advance they paid. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. How to decide 
how big an advance to pay. Well, if the author has had bestsellers before, it makes it a lot easier to persuade your boss that this one's going to be a bestseller too. Which leads to this challenge. What makes something a bestseller? How to count them? Today, in 2020, it's very straightforward. Nielsen BookScan counts them all. Cash registers scan things. It's not that hard to tell how many copies of something sells. But for the longest time, as you could imagine, it wasn't that automatic. And so in the 1930s and 40s, the New York Times steps into the breach. First, by surveying New York City stores, then adding one city at a time until they were up to 22 cities and turning it into a national list, a bestseller list. Back to Barnes & Noble. Barnes & Noble wants to strike a blow against the independent bookstores in the 1970s and 80s. How to do that? Well, here's what they decided to do. If it's a New York Times bestseller, they said, we will have tons of them in a big pile near the front of the store, and we will sell them basically at cost. It's a loss leader. Let the New York Times decide what's hot and then promote it like crazy. People who were looking for the big books, the hit books, meaning the masses, are the ones who are also price sensitive, are the ones who are going to stumble into the big box store asking, what should I read now? I want to read what everybody else is reading. People like us do things like this. What is everybody else reading? They're reading the book that's on the New York Times bestseller list and in big stacks, which means it's going to keep selling, which means it's going to stay on the list even longer, which means that more people are going to read it, which means that more people are going to talk about it. And so the cycle continues. Well, this is a common cycle in many forms of media. What's the problem? Well, there are a few problems. In 1983, Peter Blatty, who wrote The Exorcist, wrote, another book. It turned into a movie called The Exorcist 3. That book didn't make the New York Times bestseller list. So Peter Blatty did what many authors wish they could do. He sued the New York Times. The case went almost all the way to the Supreme Court. And the decision? Well, the New York Times said, what do you mean you're suing us? The New York Times bestseller list isn't actually a list of best-selling books. It's just a list we made up. It is editorial judgment, they said. It's a list of books we want to put on the New York Times bestseller list. It is not something you can sue us for because we're not pretending it's true. I can't believe I just said that. I can't believe the New York Times said that, but they did. Ever since then, the New York Times has done whatever they needed to to make the list reflect the books they want us talking about, the books they want us to buy, the books they want to get written, as opposed to what's actually selling. A couple examples. The New York Times has a list called Advice, How-To, and Miscellaneous. As a book packager, I guess I was in the miscellaneous business. And getting on that list was important to me and the people that I was working with. Well, That list, like the other lists in the Times, had, I don't remember, 10 books on it. And one week, I opened the book review on a Sunday, and I discover that they have made the how-to advice and miscellaneous list half as long. 
Now, this is a big deal because it's the hardest list to get on because books like that tend to sell a lot of copies. And they made the list half as long, which made it much harder to get on the list. So I wrote a letter to the editor of the book review, and I said, what's going on here? Why did you make this list, the list of books that a lot of people are interested in, half as long? And she wrote back, because we don't want people to read those books. I wish I had kept that letter, but yes, she wrote, because we don't want people to read those books. There was a period of time when Harry Potter books were selling and selling and selling. As a result, the top of the fiction list was crowded with Harry Potter titles. So what did the Times do? They invented a new list, children's fiction, so they could take Harry Potter off the list and go back to focusing on the books they wanted people to read. I am totally fine with the Times having a list of books people should be reading or popular books people should be reading. The problem is the entire ecosystem embraces the fiction of what it means to be a New York Times bestseller. As a result, entrepreneurial authors have decided to take matters into their own hands. Jacqueline Suzanne famously tried to butter up the staff of the Times so that they would look at her books a little bit more favorably. And one of the earliest practitioners of the now obvious strategy of buying your own book was a relatively unknown author with a ghostwriter named Donald Trump. And the idea was, if you send a bunch of old ladies to a bunch of bookstores around the country, if you know which bookstores, and they buy your book and buy your book and buy your book, you can send a false signal to the person who's purveying this manipulated list, and suddenly you have earned, in quotation marks, a certain sort of credibility. Now, Barnes & Noble doesn't have nearly as much power. The stacks and stacks of books have disappeared, and yet, we still treat a New York Times bestselling author like a Nobel Prize winning physicist. And here's where the process really gets corrupting. If you are an author, you are under pressure to turn your book into a New York Times bestseller. And so you start to make decisions. Decisions about the subtitle, because if it's not a how-to book, then it might end up on a different list. Decisions about how you're going to deal with groups, organizations, and others that really want to read your book. Most people don't know, but a hardcover book costs about $1.50 to print, and yet it sells for $20 or more. Now, if you're trying to get yourself on the New York Times bestseller list, what you'll do is if a group of people, maybe 100 students, wants to read your book, you'll say, okay, here's what I need you to do. Here's the link. Go pay $22 for this book, buy 100 at a time, and then, and then, and then, and then. That's 2200 bucks. The alternative is you could spend, I don't know, $150 to just hand them all a copy of your book, spreading the idea, teaching them what they need to know. That there's a fork in the road that so many authors who are trying to change the culture have to face. And one side of that fork is, Will I spend my time, ethically or unethically, seeking to manipulate the times, which is a list that's not based on anything rational, or will I spend my time trying to spread my idea? Because it turns out that ideas that spread win. 
It turns out that this choking point of being on the Times list is distracting the people who want to change the culture into a detour that takes them away from their goal in the first place. Because if the goal in the first place is to change the culture, maybe a book isn't even the way to do it. Maybe a podcast is the way to do it, or a blog post is the way to do it, or a conference is the way to do it. Maybe the way to do it is to run a workshop for a small number of people who will teach other people. So what we're left with is this cultural overhang, 500 years of patina and authority that come with having a book. And at the top of the book food chain, that little sticker that says, this is a New York Times bestseller. The whole notion that handing someone a document that codifies your idea somehow gives it more authority, it's under threat. It's under threat for a whole bunch of reasons. And one of the biggest ones is this. The people who are changing our culture, who are leading the conversation, who are open to new ideas, they're not hanging out at the bookstore the way that they used to. That ideas that spread win, but ideas that spread fast often have more of an impact than ideas that sit on a shelf. And so what we end up with is a coarsening of our conversation. What we end up with is clever link bait, clever listicles, ending up taking up the time of people who used to be able to sit still and actually read a book. Books are precious. The time that the author spends putting it together, the time that the reader spends digesting it, this is time well spent. It takes 64 hours to listen to Robert Caro's The Power Broker, a massive book about Robert Moses. It could have been a blog post. If it had been a blog post, it wouldn't have worked. And so what we're left with is this need to curate, to figure out a way how to sort the important stuff from the hypey stuff. And the New York Times could be taking that role. They could figure out how to actually do what they said they were doing in 1983, which is curating the list that people like us are reading, because people like us do things like this. But instead, they are maintaining an antediluvian approach to reporting something to us that is easy to look up accurately. And what we really need is for authors to not spend any time, and publishers to not spend any time trying to game the New York Times. And instead, what we need are authors and publishers spending all their time trying to make something worth reading, trying to make something that once someone reads it, they will tell someone else. So famously, about 10 years ago, I wrote a blog post in, on the Domino Project blog, Firing the New York Times, announcing that I wasn't going to pay any attention to it, that I wasn't going to do a thing to try to get myself on the New York Times bestseller list. And it has been very liberating. Because if you write books for your readers, and if you write books so that your readers will tell the others, you are way more likely to impact the culture. And that is the reason we write a book in the first place. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second to answer your questions from last time. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. If you want to learn to ride a bicycle, don't watch a video, don't read a book. 
Hey, it's Seth, and I'm here to talk about the Akimbo Workshops. These are interactive, real-time, online workshops that work. And we're devoting 2020 to finding one that matches where you need to go. If you're ready to level up, I hope you'll check out akimbo.com to find out about our proven, effective workshops. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. Hi, Seth. It's Andre again. Thank you so much for answering my... my uh, my question last time. Um, this time, I would love to hear your take on um, uh, the weight of responsibility and the emotional toll um, uh, of of trying to change culture, trying to lead and have a business. As a new business owner, it's something that I've been really strang- uh, struggling with uh, over the past uh, couple of years. And I am wondering whether everybody could or should bear this much responsibility and this much emotional distress um, or is it something that is that is or should be reserved for uh, a chosen few, namely the leaders? I know that you are always about the fact that everybody should lead and I believe in that very strongly. Uh, I'm just wondering what your take is on, 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 on that whole aspect of things. Thank you so much for everything you do and um, hear you soon. Thank you, Andre. I think that we have to begin by differentiating between the physical labor and the quest for efficiency that the factory demands and the emotional labor that leadership, craft, art, and the connection economy demand. That we still live in an industrial economy, one where productivity is measured, where people burn the candles at both ends, where people are pushed ever harder to do that thing against constraints. But it's important to distinguish that from the emotionally difficult work of leaning out of the boat, of choosing to lead, of doing something that might not work. And when I say that everyone can lead, what I'm saying is that everyone already has. At least once in your life, you have said something, done something, contributed something, that was useful, that was important, that had never been done before. So the challenge that we face is how do we do that again? And we don't have to do it as the victim of the system. We can do it as the maker of the system, which leads to the question from Jesus. This is Jesus from Mexico. I was jogging while listening to the treadmill episode about turning it to 11. I had to stop it and see it because this one hits home in a sad way. I work in mid-level management in a manufacturing environment. We were already at 11 before the pandemic and we are starting to hit 12. I have seen how this corporate culture of turning it to 11 sends people to the hospital because of stress, insomnia, digestive issues. It creates addictions and even dysfunctional families because of the long shifts at work. I've experienced some of those issues myself as the bar gets set higher and higher every time. A decision to leave this kind of job is hard because the pay is good and I want to provide to my family. But on the flip side, I think that if people 
like Elon Musk didn't turn it to 11, we wouldn't have breakthroughs in engineering, science, or medicine. So if we, if, so if there weren't people pushing beyond the limits, how do we break the status quo? How do we hit higher goals without the negative side effects? Thanks, Ed. So clearly, there's an industrial dynamic going on here. Yes, we do want to provide for our family. We do seek affiliation and status. We do want to be able to provide stability and health and well-being to ourselves and the people around us. And the bargain the industrialists brought to us is one that says the only way to get there is, again, burning the candle at both ends, exerting ourselves more than other people do. But I think it's a mistake to then conflate that with the useful contributions of someone like Elon Musk or Spike Lee. Because in those cases, if we add up their useful contributions, they worked less in terms of hours or sweat on those things than you do in your factory job. That what we end up doing is running around crazed because we think that that extra productivity and the drama and the urgency is required to actually lean into the hard work of connection, innovation, and leadership. They don't have to be that way. Thomas Edison famously kept up a really rigorous pace. He ran a shop of fellow inventors that was known for being quite rigorous. However, by today's standards, they were coasting because we measure ourselves not against what needs to be done, but against what other people are doing and social media makes it worse. Social media says, here are snapshots of people who are ahead of you. Here is a feeling of being behind. You better hurry up because you're losing. And Silicon Valley and the banks, they do the same thing because money wants to flow to the, quote, best use of money. And so we measure basis points. We're racing to edge out the competition to get there a heartbeat faster or to yield a few more pennies on the dollar. And unfortunately, the highly leveraged capitalist system we work in often does reward people who are willing to shortcut, people who are willing to burn out. And yes, the rest of us benefit because someone gave up so much to do that. But there's also plenty of evidence that shows that people who persistently and consistently contribute at a pace they can sustain make an even bigger difference over time. It's about chronic contribution, showing up and showing up, learning, evolving, and doing it again. But we don't have to do it again at 11 at night or 1 in the morning or 3 in the morning because it's not that kind of race. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And it's a marathon we can do with joy and with lightness to our step if we are fortunate enough to get the benefit of the doubt, if we are fortunate enough to not be brainwashed, indoctrinated into believing we're simply a cog in the system, if we are fortunate enough to have choices, if those things are true, then those choices we make matter a lot. How do we spend that time we call free time? What are we measuring? What does success look like? What would happen if you worked a little bit less, built a side hustle, and were able to grow that into something that could sustain you and your family. Maybe more isn't the answer. Maybe better is the answer. We've got to improve the way we ask the questions 
before we can figure out the best path forward. Hi, Seth. My name is Doug Schmidt. I'm a teacher from Rochester, New York. I recently watched the documentary, The Social Dilemma, where leaders in the tech industry talk about their regrets or issues with media today and how it needs to change. Listening to your podcast, it seems that you are trying to change the system too, not from the top down, but from the bottom up, person by person. I was wondering, do you have any regrets or feelings of responsibility for things you created and didn't see the possible negative impact at the time that they might have on society? Thank you for your insights and all you do. Thank you for this. I think about it a lot. I think about the fact that pioneering email marketing a long time ago opened the door for a lot of good to happen. Communication between willing, consenting parties, things that could scale and create positive side effects. But I also know that when I started, and it was a $0 billion industry, and now that it's a multi-multi-billion dollar industry, a lot of those billions are about people who are manipulating or spamming or skirting the edges. I know, having written books like Tribes, that they enabled a lot of causes that I believe in to do really well. But I also know that some of those ideas have been adopted by people who would divide us, who would make the world worse. And I do feel responsibility for that. I'm not sure how I could avoid it. Then I think about that time machine, the one I hardly use. What would happen if I had gone back in time and invested in social media companies, found myself on their board, and been able to speak up? How do we end up changing a system from the top that indoctrinates us into a set of beliefs that most of us don't want to live with, ones that are based on judging people, on their appearance, ones that are about creating hierarchies. And yes, lots of cycles, making people feel badly about themselves so that they will do more that helps the dominant power system. This is all a shame. It's all a tragedy. It's all immoral. What should we do about it? So I don't have any regrets about playing on the frontier of media and of being in the internet from the beginning. I do know that each of us has to stand up more proudly. I do know that each of us has to stand up and take more responsibility because doing things simply because they're being done is a really good excuse. But doing things simply because they're being done minimizes our value as contributors, as our value as humans. We can do better. We must do better. And we start by saying, not on my watch. We've got to figure out how to leverage our voices not so that we simply walk away from systems we don't approve of, but where we can help create coordinated action so those systems pay attention to the fact that they are here to serve us. We are not here to serve them. Thanks to everyone for your questions. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when you're gonna show up. 
When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.